listening to the Fectoplasm podcast, and it's been a little while since the last episode. Things are generally slowing down these days, it's a peril of being a parent. But I am still trying to churn these out, and I'm going to spend the next couple of episodes, maybe three, we'll see, going on a deep dive into a subject that really interests me. The subject is fictional worlds that exist as fiction inside a primary fictional world. Yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful. Hopefully you'll see what I mean. I'm going to discuss three books. The first one is The Magicians by Lev Grossman. Following on to that, we'll have The Land of Laughs by Jonathan Carroll and The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. We've also got an interview or two lined up. So without further ado, I'll talk about The Magicians. In The Magicians by Lev Grossman, Quentin Coldwater is your typical anxious teen on the cusp of adulthood. He's an archetypical geek character with an obsession for Christopher Plover's YA fantasy novel set in Fillory, involving various members of the Chatwin family and their journeys into that realm. He's really bright and he's headed to Princeton for college. But before his interview, he's brought into an examination in a completely different school, which we later learn as Breakbills, where he's accepted and taught magic. The novel follows his academic career and that of the friends he makes, Julie, Elliot, Janice and Josh. Their lifestyle is best described as competitive hedonism punctuated by dangerous and traumatic magical experiments. If this sounds like an older, edgier, delinquent Harry Potter, well, you're right. And it's so obviously a pastiche of Rowling that I have to wonder at the reviews I saw on Amazon claiming it was a rip-off of Harry Potter. Grossman actually cites Rowling as well as obviously C.S. Lewis's influences. Anyway, Quentin and Chums navigate their way through this edgy, dark Hogwarts and come out the other side as graduates. They lose other students here and there, notably to an extra-dimensional antagonist known as the Beast, who, who just walks into one of the classes and kills one of the students. They suffer real grief and trauma, and this obviously changes them. Now, it's worth noting that because they're college students rather than children, they have no real adults looking after them or acting as any mentor figure, as you might expect in Harry Potter, for example. The closest we get to anything like mentoring is this sort of adversarial teaching that Quentin receives at the hands of Professor Mayakovsky, who works on Breakbill South. So our heroes suffer through to graduation, but unlike Harry Potter, the art goes beyond Breakbills and into the real world. Graduation, if I remember correctly, happens about halfway through the novel, which is the first of three. So their time at Breakbills is interesting and fun, but it's also not anywhere near the whole story. We basically see what happens when Harry Potter gets given the keys to limitless power and then shoved out into the real world to make his own way. And what happens? We already know that the students have been subjected to crazy swings backwards and forwards between nights of uh, rampant debauchery and really dangerous situations with what seems to be no real adult oversight although there must have been some so they've had very traumatic events and they've offset it with massive hedonistic indulgence and so as you expect they've come out with a a slightly broken view of the world and maybe a bit spoiled quite frankly is there any wonder that they turn out to be narcissistic, self-centred assholes. The group doesn't really have to struggle for a living, and so they end up drifting around in a haze of perpetual drunkenness and debauchery. 
Various people sleep with people they shouldn't sleep with. Feelings are hurt. The group begins to implode. And it probably would have done if another character, Penny, hadn't turned up right at the point where everyone was at their nadir and said, hey guys, I found a magical way to fillery. And say, yeah, that's right. The fantasy world of Fillory, beloved piece of fiction that the various characters have know intimately, actually exists. And Plover's novels are drawn from experience and observation. Now, that said, the books are decades old in Quentin's time. And although time does move differently in Fillory, and that actually causes its own problems when the characters try to dress appropriately for the season they think they're going to be in. What this means is things have moved on in Fillory and the status quo isn't what the group anticipated. Despite their analytical discussions of the books, including the elusive final novel, which was thrust into Quentin's hands very early on in the novel, the the world they encounter is not what they anticipated. Natural and magical laws have been broken. The most egregious being the beast, a monster that has sacrificed its humanity to remain in the magical world. The Chatwins, child protagonists of Plover's books, are also real, and like Fillory, they've aged, losing their innocence in adulthood, becoming cynical and obsessed with victory. I'm going to stop there before I reveal too much of the book. Let's go over the themes. There's obviously this metatextual thread running throughout the whole book about what certain essential parts of YA titles were corrupted by growing up. The obvious two are, what if Hogwarts was dangerous, its professors indifferent, and Harry was a bit of an ass. And also, what if the children in Narnia outstayed their welcome, corrupted it, and used its power for selfish reasons? Kind of amusing. And you could do that for any YA title. It would be like shooting very fat fish in a small barrel, quite frankly. It'd be funny for all of five minutes, and I personally would think twice about making an RPG out of it, simply because the act of inverting the plot makes it just as much of a railroad as running through the plot as as is. Best save these ideas for debrief in the pub, I think. There is a much more important theme which may be worth thinking about for a game, which is the investment of the characters in their version of Fillory, what it's like to discover A, that it's real, B, get to the place, and then find all of the rules that you thought were in place have changed. Now, if I were to pitch a game as, oh, it's Harry Potter as the Hitler Youth, well, that would be in bad taste, of course, but aside from that, There's no real mystery or expectation. It doesn't matter that it's Harry Potter. And okay, there might be the odd sort of gratification beat and the nods to the metafiction, which would only matter to those players who are actually big into Harry Potter fic. For most players, they probably wouldn't care. And actually, this is a problem that I have with trying to pander to fan fiction anyway, or or the, the canon. I'm pretty certain I get it wrong a lot of the time. If I get it wrong, what's the players going to think about that? No, I don't want to reproduce a piece of work verbatim. In fact, I never have. This has always been the mission, the thing I wanted to make distinct in Fictoplasm. I want to take the ideas. Now, you could pull an alt-universe switcheroo on the players. There's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Doppelgangland. This is the infamous alternate universe where the Slayer never turned up in Sunnydale, and as a result, notably, Willow and Xander are both vampires, and a lot of other people have died... Uh, Angel has been imprisoned, 
Giles is fighting a losing battle and not doesn't have many Scoobies to back him up. And they realise that this isn't actually how it was supposed to be. They intuit that we are in the wrong parallel universe. That's cute. I think I could work with that. But the question is, how do you actually convey that to the characters or to the players? Here I'm thinking of setting expectations of the PCs by giving them access to the alt history and then later revealing that the truth deviates now writing that sort of thing is going to be tough there's the sheer effort involved in writing it and then there's getting it to the players too many written handouts and it will choke the game everyone will be looking at the table look at the pace of paper and too much oral monologuing by the gm and the pairs will fall asleep they'll misremember the facts anyway they won't be able to tell which NPC is talking to them. A long time ago, I played in a LARP where I was given a potted history of the situation. I think it was some sort of diplomatic thing on another planet or something. It turned out that the GMs had given out three separate histories and given one version to some players, second version to others, and the final version to the rest. Well, okay, that's kind of cute because it means we have slightly different memories, except it was a LARP and it had quite a dense bit of text. So what they didn't count on was that most of us just skim read the text and all the little subtleties that differed were glossed over. We missed the details. And it's not like we could actually take each other's background sheet and compare it. That wouldn't work. Be funny. Be funny sort of metagaming, but unfortunately it wouldn't work. Okay. So here's the idea about using this in a role-playing game in a way that might approach something good. This is a magical world, and at the start of the game, it exists as fiction to the PCs. There is an in-world body of work that is fiction that describes this place. And sooner or later, it will become real, and then you'll want the party to step over the threshold and into Narnia. Fair enough. This is not a mystery. Of course there's going to be a fantasy world. And of course the players are going to find themselves on the other side of it. That is what we expect from all of our speculative fiction. But what matters here is the reason they have for stepping over the threshold. It's not enough to just lead a trail of breadcrumbs and say, now you go into the mystical of the world. You'll always find at least one player who finds a reason not to go. Because, oh, it's for safety reasons or... It's just not what my character would do. Yeah, we've all heard that. No, this relationship with the magical world has to be baked in into the character from the start. Maybe it's curiosity or maybe it's the sense of something in their past that's lost and that they'll find in the magical world for some reason. You know, you could think of, uh, I don't know, a dead sibling or something like that who's actually been calling to them for the magical world or they, they enjoyed the books together and now they're in the other world or something like that. Or a promise of power, something simple, a magic sword, whatever. I want to mention a couple of games which might fit with the general approach. The first is Call of Cthulhu Dreamlands. Now, Call of Cthulhu is already all about the books. Um, I think that's something actually we've got away from a bit. One of the things I found the most exciting when I played my first ever Call of Cthulhu, which I think was Fungi from Yogoth, was the way that we were grabbing tomes and reading them and gaining Cthulhu mythos percentiles and going mad. And we were getting these spells. We didn't know what they did. 
The one spell my character learnt was incredibly dangerous. Uh, he cast it in a fit of madness and um, Star Vampire got him, I think. That's quite funny. Anyway, I can't think of anything more thrilling than travelling to the alien places described in those books. You get these 1920s characters who are invested in the real world. They find this book that tells them about subterranean places or libraries on different distant worlds. They want to go there. And they have to want to go there for some reason. It has to be baked into their character. Yeah, we, we focus on the investigation in a lot of cases in the trail of breadcrumbs. But what about the exploration? Why shouldn't Call of Cthulhu be a sandbox? All right, well, maybe that's a question for a totally different podcast. Anyway, the other game I want to mention is Sanomini's Silent Legions. And the reason I mention this, it's a lot like Call of Cthulhu. It's it's kind of OSR Cthulhu. But I, I speak very highly of it because I think that it is extremely well thought out in terms of functional support for the GM, including developing your pantheon, laying out your mystery and the locations with location tags, managing cults, and managing the other worlds. And this other world, the Kelepot, the um, uh, the dark side of the um, Sephiroth from the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. I'm not never sure if I've pronounced it correctly, but Kelepoth, um are the alternate worlds. They're little pocket universes. I really like the way that it generates those. Puts me in mind of Clive Barker as well. But that's also another story. Some other time. I recommend you check both of those out. Cthulhu Dreamlands and Sinormane Silent Legions. So one of the key points in The Magicians is that when the children revisit this magical world as adults, they corrupt it or it turns out to be not what they expect, or the experience is painful instead of beautiful. This next bit is a discussion I had with Becky Anderson about her fantastic game When the Dark is Gone, which is published as part of the Seven Wonders anthology published by Pelgrane Press. I recommend you check it out. Anyway, here we go. Well, hello, Becky. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm really good, thanks for inviting me, Ralph. Excellent. Why I want to talk to you today is your game When the Dark is Gone, which is part of the Seven Wonders anthology. Um, one of the best bits in it, I think. I thoroughly enjoy it. So, um, I w- And I've got a few questions I want to ask about this, particularly in the context of characters in a primary world who have experienced the secondary world as fiction, but it's actually, it's not fiction. It's a place that they move into in the, in the story. Mm. The When the Dark is Gone does that, but it's a rather novel, a unique take, really. Do you, would you like to outline what the game does, first of all? Sure. Thank you very much, Ralph. Um, so When the Dark is Gone is a game about a group of friends and um in therapy together and they're adults so they're sort of uh, mid-20s to early 30s age range and they have all massively screwed up their lives and their relationships with each other in a number of ways. Um, As the course of the therapy session progresses you find out that all of them went on an adventure or a series of of adventures together when they were children um, very much in the kind of the vein of the children from Narnia from Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, or um, the children in, um, is it called the 
Five Children and It, I think, by E. Nesbitt. That's great. Yeah. That sort of adventure, they had that experience as children, then they all forgot about it, um, completely messed up their lives. They're now back in therapy, uncovering the reasons behind why they were messing up their lives, and suddenly this this shared remembrance starts to come out in the game and, and then starts to direct the therapy session from there. Ah, fantastic. So the first question I've got about that, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic high concept. So what was your inspiration for it? Wow, it, it's a, it kept, my inspiration came from two sources. Um, that firstly, that I had read the Narnia books as a child, as I'm sure many of us did. I absolutely loved them. But as an adult, I looked back on them and I thought, gosh, you know, these children, they have these adventures. They grow up in Narnia. They become adults, don't they, in Narnia, in the original book. Um, they live out entire adult lives as kings and queens in Narnia until one day they find the wardrobe again. They go back through the wardrobe and suddenly they are all in the bodies of, what, six to ten-year-olds, six to eleven-year-olds. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, there is a war on, um, so there's rationing. They're expected to go back to school um, and they've left this entire life behind them. And and also the other thing, that when you when you read the Narnia books, you realise they these are children participating in war, really, and they go through some pretty horrific things um, as as very young children. And I just remember thinking, you know, as an adult rereading it and looking back on it, gosh, you know, if you had gone through that sort of experience as a child, well, you probably would end up in therapy, wouldn't you? So that was the kind of my first inspiration was these these books that I had loved and I kind of toyed with the idea of writing a novel on this sort of theme. So it was an idea that had been kicking around in my head for a while. And then I had... Um, I got exposed to Fiasco by Jason Morningstar, um, which was my first kind of indie game of the kind of the new generation of indie games. And it was quite fun, but it, I know it's based heavily on Coen Brothers films, and they're not really my my favourite genre. And I remember saying to, I think it was Josh at the time, how I really wanted a game like Fiasco, which was prepless, um, with no GM, uh, or or a GM in a very different role to a traditional role, whereby um, you could form these really intense character relationships over the course of two to four hours and have that really you know, intense character um, experience that you get from a long-term game, um, but doing it really, really quickly. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, gosh, you know, I think it would be really fun to try and do that with no conflict resolution mechanic. I wonder if that's possible. And and the way that I came up with for, you know, having a really cool, intense, prepless session with no character, with, with no conflict resolution, was the idea of setting it in a therapy session and, and very much basing it in the idea of recovered memories. So the players in When the Dark is Gone, they at spontaneously improvise at the gaming table all of their memories about what happened in the fantasy world they visited as children. And my premise really was it doesn't matter if that's not consistent because memories are not consistent and they certainly wouldn't be consistent from your childhood in that way. And and really to kind of then play with the idea of memory being fallible and making the game not so much about how do we resolve our conflict about our different memories of, about what happened, but what does the fact that 
we have conflicting memories about what happens, say, about our lives now. I was just saying about those conflicting memories and and conflicting stories, of course, uh, that does actually make me think of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is maybe not quite the same thing, but this uh, contradiction of narrative is is sort of interesting. So you talked about... uh, you talk mostly about children's fiction for sources, right? Is there anything else that, uh, that you draw on as, uh, as preparation or research? It was very much rooted in, in the sort of children's novels that I'd grown up on. But I think that one of the interesting things that we did was that a good friend of mine, John, did a, a playtest of the game that I, I participated in as a player. And it was called When the Doctor's Gone. And the idea was a, it was a Doctor Who style game where all of the participants in the session were former companions of the doctor was he real did he really exist did the adventures really happen or did we imagine them um because you know we'd all known the doctor through different incarnations and that was a really fun twist on on the premise i thought yeah so it was was that um was that simply a hack or was it an earlier version of it or Oh, that was a hack that he he came up with that he thought would be a good idea. And I know that Mo Holker has proposed um, when when the dog is gone, um, which is was uh, was he's jokingly mentioned uh, based on the famous five novels that um, that Timmy the dog was the instigator for all of the adventures in the famous five novels, and that he never really existed. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that that is entirely true. That's a good idea. I thought it was quite fun. So, uh, what sort of what sort of iterations did you go through when you were uh, designing when the dark is gone and and what were the earlier versions like the game in many ways didn't change from the initial premise because so much of the system and the mechanics if you like because there's no conflict resolution system being in it there is a uh, there is a person who plays a therapist or a facilitator who doesn't participate as um, as a person in therapy and they have a role which is not dissimilar in some ways to I would say a real therapist that they're there to draw out ideas from the other characters Um, and that that kind of central aspect that this is a therapy session you were all friends with you now have very complicated messy lives and relationships there is a person who is not a GM who doesn't do a GMly role they don't create anything, but they're there to facilitate the discussion like a therapist would. Those things didn't change at all. I think what changed the most between my early drafts and the final product in The Seven Wonders um, was really that so much of how to so much of the game depends on how you play the therapist character. Right. And so much of how that worked was locked in my head. And yeah. it's, I think it's one of those things where I would always say that playtesting your games is really important, but trying to get somebody who is not in your friendship circle to playtest them for you is even more important. Um, because the first few people who playtested When the Dark is Gone who were not me were people that I knew very well and I had role-played with for years. And there were clearly things that I was doing when I played that therapist character that my good friends who I'd role played with for years unconsciously knew how to do and knew what to do Mm. and then um, when Pelgrane got their hands on it Simon Rogers ran a play test um, and I'd never role played with him and he just came back with this most amazing set of questions for me saying well how do you do all of these things 
because clearly we were coming from very different role-playing cultures and things which I didn't even realise I was doing to make the game work. And so I hadn't written them in the instructions because I didn't know I was doing them. Simon was able to see those holes and see those gaps and say, well, this is these are the things that you need to write down. This is the thing that you need to fill it in with. Um, and that was just the, the most amazing experience, really, having having somebody who could take you through that process and show you what you're missing. And so in some ways it didn't change at all. It's just that I hadn't written down 50% of the things that I needed to write down in order that somebody else could write it, to run it. So really we're talking about getting the polish on it, but going from a an essentially a playable game that if we were to take it to one of our cons, then we it's it would work straight away. But in order to make it work for somebody you'd never met, um, then you would need to write down examples and guidance, right? Exactly right, exactly right. Things, uh, and I think this is true of a lot of role-playing games. There's certainly, I'm not going to name any of them, but there are certainly role-playing games out there that I love and that I've played. And when I've read them, it has been very clear to me that there is a play culture where if you're in that play culture, there are things that you would understand which weren't written in the rules. I, I think there's uh, most uh, role-playing games have, have that sin and it's really it does it shouldn't really surprise us that it's a sort of um, a tacit skill that's picked up from the the kinds of people you play with, and that's why um, most of this is communicated through play with other people um, as opposed to being written down. Yes, yeah. There's a cultural transmission element to role playing, isn't there? Yeah, indeed. Well. Uh, I've got a couple more questions on the design before I go into the fiction element. And one thing I want to just just get out there is is it's when you did write this game, you structured it very deliberately around a fixed time frame. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And that that I think is the most interesting thing for me because one of the things you can't tell of any role playing game session is where the characters will be in three hours time. And you can you can assume that if you jolly them along, they'll be approximately here, um, depending on what you do. But really, this is an entirely free-form game. There is no script. There is no actual plot apart from the one that's spontaneously generated by the players. Um, so you've got a defined time frame. And also, am I right in thinking that the therapist, the, the one thing they must do is make sure that everyone speaks? Yes, um, so the defined time frame is sort of two to four hours, roughly, because I wanted it to be the sort of game that you could pick up at a convention, you know, sort of like a, a Gen Con or a Dragon Meet or something like that, and fit it into a convention time slot. Um, and the one of the things that a therapist does or has is it's some, there's something called the tr- spotlight tracking sheet, where as the therapist, you kind of out of character, you're mentally keeping track of how long somebody's been having a conversation or monologuing for. And then you direct your questions to make sure that everybody gets roughly the same amount of airtime. And I think that you're right that there isn't a defined linear adventure. So by the two hour mark, you expect them to be at the, you know, the big cave where they're going to 
start the descent into the dungeon or anything like that. So there isn't that sort of d defined time frame. Um, but the therapist does have some tools to sort of push the narrative along because you, there are a lot of provoking questions and sample questions um, that you can use. Uh, there's there's descriptions in the text, sorry, in the game text for how you can push the game along. But one of the key things about writing When the Dark is Gone that I discovered very early on um, was that this is a game where really the less the therapist says, the better. Yeah. And one of the key rules for the therapist is if there is an awkward silence in your game, just let it sit and let it sit for a few beats longer than you are comfortable with. And the reason I said that um, was because, firstly, I think, as GMs, when there's an uncomfortable silence, you want to move the action on. You want to fill it with an attack. You don't want everyone to just sort of sit there because that's dull. But when we were doing the playtesting for When the Dark is Gone, I realised that when there was an uncomfortable silence, it was it was this very powerful, palpable moment. And you could really interpret it as everybody in there is sitting in their pain and doesn't want to speak. And what I discovered as the when I was doing the therapist in this situation is that if you just don't say anything as the therapist, if you as GM do not leap in to fill that void, some player will just start spilling their emotions, their character's emotions. They'll, some player will find that silence themselves so uncomfortable they will just want to fill it with their character's feelings or spill a secret or something like that. And so the silent, the, GM, the, the GM's silence in this is actually a really powerful tool to get the players talking. I think that's, uh, that's something I recognise from... I, I've done a lot of technical facilitation for um, you know, chemical project, brainstorming and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of the time, I'm not trying to solve the problem for the delegates. I'm trying to get them to speak. So I also like to leave uncomfortable silences, which, depending on which part of the country it comes from, it's uh, it can be more effective. Um, the problem with Brits is that we, we abhor uncomfortable silences, silences and we'll fill it with gibberish as opposed to anything meaningful. But uh, So one of the things I want to ask then, is, and I think this is moving into the fiction part, is you've got these characters in a primary world. And the therapy session is happening in the primary world, right? Which means that the uncomfortable silence that the therapist is causing is part of the role-playing. I guess my first question is, does everyone know about the secondary world? Well, this is an interesting point. So all of the characters know about the secondary world, all of the player characters. Does that include the facilitator? Ah, well, that's the interesting part. So... As the facilitator, it's sort of up to you to judge how your playgroup is going. And what I found is, is that it usually takes the players, the it can take them up to the first, you know, first third of the session before they will mention the world, the secondary world. And as a therapist, the, playing the therapist, if you can hold your nerve and not step in with a leading question, that is much better 
if you can not direct it and let the players start to talk about the secondary world organically. And, and when that happens, it doesn't matter whether you as the therapist knew about the world or not. It's kind of irrelevant at that point because your role as a therapist is not to judge. If they say there's a, a another world, well, then that just sits in the room and your opinion on that's kind of irrelevant. Um, there is, if, if, if it really looks like everybody's going to dig their heels in and absolutely refuse to mention it and you're going to get to the end of four hours and not mentioned it um, and the action is lagging, then as the therapist there are leading questions which are, you know, sample versions are provided in the game that you can use to kind of tease it out of people. At which point you can assume that the therapist at least knows the existence of the world or, or at least that the player characters think that the world exists. Whether or not it really does exist is one of the, um, the, the things which should always just be left hanging. The uncertainty of it is part of the power of it. Yeah. And one of the, uh, one of the things in fiction like this that I've been looking into is the secondary world and whether or not people know about it and how they know about it. And one of the versions is it exists as a work of fiction within the primary primary world and for some reason, the protagonist can go into the secondary world. But I'm getting the impression that in this, it's just, well, we're just focusing on the characters and they've had the experience. We uh, Do we even know if the, we don't objectively know if the secondary world exists. This is what you're saying. Yes. Um, and the fact that nobody knows objectively if it exists, and it's a question of your belief, um, is part of what makes the game powerful, I think. There are no definitives, there are no certainties. So I've asked you a lot of things about whether the facilitator, does they, do they believe the characters? And you've essentially said, well, it's not their case to issue a judgment on that. Um, and it's clear that whether the secondary world exists or not, we're never going to get any definitive proof in game. All we're ever going to have is what the characters say to each other. So what they're, they're, they're effectively in a locked room or in a closed room in a sort of chamber chamber larp type thing, and this is a fixed session length. So, what does resolution look like in your game? Oh, well, again, again, this is sort of was me playing with the concept um, that I remember thinking, well, if I'm not going to have any conflict resolution, the only thing I can really have people do is talk. And if they disagree about things, we can't get out our swords and roll some dice. We have to resolve our disagreements through talking. Um, and whether or not the, you know, the, the ideal situation is by the end of the session, some of the characters at least will have resolved some of their relationship issues. And it's really up to the um, therapist, whose job is very much to be watching the players watching the conversations develop to get a sense of when there is kind of a semi-climactic resolution between some of the characters. Um, but there there will be no kind of big finale fight. It very much is the, the session is a piece of string. And I think that as a therapist, when you're playing the therapist, if you're really watching the players and listening to what's going on and, and charting, you know, the trajectory of, of how their relationships are changing during the course of the session, you usually get a feel for when you've had a resolution of some sort between a subgroup of the players. And throughout all of the playtesting that was done, what we usually found was 
for about the first half an hour to 40 minutes, people just snipe at each other, talk about how they feel and do not mention the other world, the other world at all. And then for the next kind of hour or so, they really ramp up creating things about the other world, drawing parallels between what happened to them in the other world and the way they've screwed up their lives and their relationships now. And at some point, usually one or two people, um, because every character has a secret that they're keeping from somebody important in the room. And the sort of the second rule of when the dark is gone, if the first rule of when the dark is gone is hold off for talking for three beats longer than is comfortable. The second rule is fling your secrets in each other's faces at the most dramatic moment possible. Make your reveals awful. If you, you know, you're in the middle of a row with somebody, you know something awful about them and you just can't help but just just throw it at them. So usually by sort of the 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 end of that middle section, people are throwing secrets like hand grenades into the conversation and then then the therapist can do some work after those secrets have been exploded um, in helping them come to a resolution and then ending the session but it's it's very i think this is why there's so much guidance on how to play the therapist because the the um, rhythm of the session following that that broad outline is very dependent on the soft skills of the person playing the therapist so it, it sounds like um well, and, and I think I got this impression when I played it. Some people will resolve their stuff. Some people just won't. And this is one session of an unspecified number. Is that correct? Yes, you could absolutely do it as a campaign. Um, I've never done it as a campaign. I've only ever, it was designed for one shots, but there is guidance in there on how you would turn it into a campaign. Um, and... Um, yeah, so you know, you you could run it until everybody has had a satisfactory relationship resolution of some sort. Yeah, on on the other on the flip side, I was thinking that you run it as a two hour game, and you accept that you, all you're doing is going to look at that one therapy session, and some people will come away without their issues resolved, although they will have rese- hopefully revealed something that's happened to them. And I, and I I, th- I think that that to me is very appealing that you're not going to just assume everything gets wrapped up. Yeah, absolutely. And um, because part of what I wanted to do with it was say, well, this is like a therapy session in the sense that, I mean, obviously it's not a therapy session, but it's like a therapy session in the sense that you aren't going to solve all of your problems in a two hour session. You aren't going to uncover everything that needs to be uncovered. But by the end of the session, your character should have made some progress towards resolving what's wrong in their lives. So everybody should leave the session feeling like things have been moved and shifted around and improved somewhat, even if it's not a big cathartic resolution. Yeah, and like any meeting where you have people talking at the level where they are offering opinions and then feelings, two hours just goes just like that. And you come, and you come to the end of it, and say, "But, but I've got something else." <laughs> and uh, and and no, that that's that's our two hours. We'll have to wait till next week. Yes, and it does play very intensely. I found. Yeah, I I, I felt that when we played it, two hours was the right length, and anything longer, um, well, two hours forced you into a particular set of conversations, and that. Um, yeah, you know, it was good to be put under pressure in that way. 
I think as as well, I, I think you're absolutely right about that because you know you've got these secrets on your character sheet, you've got these relationships that this is your chance, this is the only two hours you've got to talk and to, to kind of do that character role-playing. So don't hold back, you know? You're incentivized yeah. to to, to um, spray your emotions, your character's emotions over everybody in the room liberally. Well, that sounds like an awful lot of fun. <laughs> okay. And Becky, one last question I've got. Is there anything that you change in the published version or that you would might play with for hacking it? Oh, gosh, that's very interesting. I think that the version as is written is very much... The, the things that I would not change are the fact of the therapist, the therapy session, and the idea that memories are fallible. I think that what I would change potentially is the um, the secondary world. So it's very much... The original is very much based on the novels that I read when I was a very young child um, by E. Nesbitt and um, C.S. Lewis and and people like that. Um, I think that I would absolutely like to hack it for different settings. I've I've talked with people about running a um, a Lovecraftian version of When the Dark Is Gone for people who survived some sort of um, uh, Lovecraftian horror um, that nobody believes them existed. Um, you know, I think there are all sorts of kind of interesting genres to do with something that you saw that hugely screwed you up that nobody believes was real. Mm. Um, that that you could kind of hack this to. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit of um, Aliens, the second Alien film with yep. and how when they first discover Ripley and break her out of the pods and they tell her there has been a colony on, is it LV-14? Yeah. For however many years. And she just looks at them in horror and they say, well, these things can't possibly exist because there's been a colony there for years and they would have found them by now. You know, that, you know, this, this is the therapy session with her in it. And, you know, but, so there's all sorts of, I think, interesting genres that I would move away from the kind of the, the relatively benign, although I, I'm not sure I think that, that Narnia, the children, did have that benign, much of a benign time. Actually, I think there were some pretty horrific things about it. And move it more into a horror space. Um, absolutely. That's something I'd do with it. Well, there, uh, there were definitely horrific elements, which we, I think we, we just spontaneously encountered them and said that, um, yeah, that those were things that we had real trouble resolving anyway, possibly the reasons that we blocked them out. So I can see that working in other horror genres. Uh, that's good. So, w- would you, would you have, above all call it a horror game? Uh, is everything a horror game now? <laughs> no, not not everything is a horror game. the i The idea of this game, the reason it's called "When the Dark Is Gone," is because I want to see what happens to people when the evil is defeated, and I want to see how their story progresses once the exciting adventure is over. Um, I'm very much reminded, uh, and this is another book from my childhood, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, of Lord of the Rings, obviously, and the bit where um, all the adventures are done, Sam and Frodo go home, and they're back in their small, tiny village life, having seen the whole world and having travelled with kings and having these fantastic adventures, and suddenly it's like the tap is just switched off. 
Mm. And I felt very much it was a very similar thing with the Narnia children. They've had this amazing other otherworldly experience, and suddenly, as I say in the in the um, the blurb, you know, it's back to wartime rationing and maths homework, and the tap of those adventures is just turned off, and that's it. And I think this very much was a game about well, what do you do with the, what does the rest of your life look like when the tap has been turned off, when the dark is gone, when it's all over? How do you pick up the pieces and move forward? All right, Becky, thank you. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me, Ralph. I've really enjoyed it. All right, till next time. Ta-ta. Ta-ra. You have been listening to the Fixoplasm podcast. If you like what we're producing, you could do a couple of things. One is leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever else our podcast is accumulated. It would be nice to get a bit of feedback. The other thing is you can get in touch with us over social media. Uh, we're on G+, Facebook, uh, we've got a Twitter account, although I should really use that a bit more. And of course you can leave a note on our website. That's www.fictoplasm.net if you didn't already know. The music for this podcast is by the electronic musician Chris Zabriskie. I'm a big fan of ambient music and I really enjoy his stuff. If you like it, check out the links to his various sites in the show notes. And if you like it, I encourage you to go and pay him some money for the high quality lossless away versions. And that's it. See you next time.